The Heal Podcast has been created to explore my favorite ingredients for a long-term, sustainable, healthy human experience. We take an informed look into topics that include nutritional and emotional well-being, as well as expanding consciousness. Heal stands for healthy eating and living, so why not sit back, relax, be present, and enjoy the conversations about this unique gift we were all given called life. If you feel this podcast has resonated with you, please feel free to share it with your friends, family, and colleagues, as the gift of knowledge is something wondrous. Thank you for your open hearts and minds. Alrighty, let's get into some delicious healing. If you would like to become a qualified health coach, then the Institute for Integrative Nutrition, or IIN for short, can help you achieve your goals. I completed their health coaching course many years ago, which has been one of the catalysts for my own journey into what I now love to do, which is to help people achieve greater health through the sharing of information through my books, seminars, podcasts, TV shows and films. I recommend IIN for anyone wishing to pursue a career in the health coaching and wellness space. IIN is a one-year course, so that if you're a full-time worker, busy parent, or wherever you are in your life, it is flexible enough so you'll be able to complete all the required curriculum. Please see the link included in the podcast show notes or my website to access the free sample class and first module of their program. This will give you a great taste of the format as well as the structure, and you can also utilize my special discount that I can offer you if you decide to sign up. Make sure you tell the admissions team that you're part of the Pete Evans Tuition Savings to claim your very substantial discount. Please visit integrativenutrition.com or email admissions at integrativenutrition.com. Jill R. Turlin studied homeopathy in Sydney, Australia under the late Alan Jones and the Australian Institute of Homeopathy, graduating in 1982. She held various positions within the Australian Institute of Homeopathy and in 1987 initiated and edited for four years the prestigious academic journal Similia. Jill has been associated for many years with osteopaths and chiropractors and has worked since 1990 with Byron Barras, an osteopath and chiropractor with a great interest in homeopathy. Together they have researched the homeopathic remedies applicable to muscular and skeletal patterns and the emotional origins of these patterns. Through this knowledge, many complex, chronic, physical problems have been resolved and understanding of the psychological aspects of common homeopathic remedies expanded beyond existing boundaries. To find out more about Jill R. Turland, you can purchase her book, Getting Back on Track, using Mega Potency Homeopathy. Jill, thank you so much for joining us on the podcast. How are you today? I'm very well, thank you very much. I really appreciate the time that you've allowed us today to explore your chosen field of expertise, and that is on homeopathy. Now, is that how you pronounce it? It is. Yeah, it is? Yes, that's correct. And I'd love for you to be able to explain to us what the definition of homeopathy is. Homeopathy is a system of medicine based on the natural law of similars, which is defined in Latin as similia similibus curentor, what a substance can be found to cause, it can also be found to cure. What it means is that this old law from Hippocrates was rediscovered in the late 
1800s by a German doctor, Dr. Samuel Hahnemann, who discovered through partly through self-suffering and experimentation that what a substance actually caused to happen in his healthy body could be used to treat people with similar symptoms. And he succeeded in doing this and found out by a specific method how to know what a substance would cause in specific terms and how to recognise that symptom picture in the suffering patients. It's what we commonly call the hair of the dog. (laughs) (laughs) So explain what the hair of the dog means. Let's go. The hair of the dog is the common saying that people use when they have a sip of alcohol the morning after a binge Mm -hmm. and it gets rid of the headache and the other discomfort because a minute amount, as Hahnemann discovered, a minute amount works better than a large amount and it reverses the symptoms that have been caused by the large amount. So let's put this into context then. How does that work in modern day and how did it work then? Can you give us an example of anybody who's never heard of homeopathy, which probably everybody has, but let's talk about how it works and give us a basic example. Well, the first thing that Hahnemann discovered was that he was interested in and he was reading about the action of cinchona bark on malaria. Mm -hmm. He didn't like the explanation given by one of the English doctors in a document, so he decided to try it out on himself and see what happened to himself. When he took the substance, he found that it actually caused malarial symptoms in himself. So he thought this is a bit interesting. So he did it a few times, and each time he would develop symptoms similar to what malaria gives you. And this was by taking a bark, is that correct? By taking the cinchona bark that had been used for hundreds of years by the American Indians around the Panama Canal where they first brought it into European medicine. When they were building the Panama Canal, the natives in the vicinity were using the cinchona bark to cure the malaria of the area and it was the first time that Europeans really had had much to do with malaria so they took home this information that it could be used to cure malaria and Hahnemann wanted to find out why it was going to be used successfully to cure malaria and he ended up giving himself a malarial type condition by testing the medicine on himself. So what does that mean? It means that what a substance can be found to cause, it can also be found to cure or vice versa. What it can cure, it can also be found to cause. And the difference is in the dosage. The small dose, the micro dose that we use in homeopathy is so infinitely small that scientists have often rubbished homeopathy because they couldn't find the actual molecules of the substance in the doses. But you don't even have to have a molecule. We're into nanoparticles and the energy of the and the vitality of the plant is still in there. And it's exponentiated by the method that Hahnemann discovered to make it more powerful. So that's the hair of the dog. What a substance can cause, it can also cure if you have a microdose. So is all homeopathy based around this principle of a microdose? Yes, but there are varying degrees of microdoses and some of them are not far removed from the material substance, whereas others are into the millions of a dose. The principle is that you dilute on a particular formula, which is either a one in 10 drops of an an inert substance like an alcohol or something, Mm -hmm. or pure water, and then you take one-tenth of that into another 
10 times the amount. And in between each dilution like that, you give it a good succussion, a good banging on your hand, the little bottle, Mm -hmm. or on a hard covered book or whatever you like. And it's the succussion process that releases the latent energy in the nanoparticles or the particles and the atoms of the basic substance. Now, let's talk about the substances. So are they always plant-derived or do they come from other parts of nature as well, such as animals, or is it always plants? We can use anything. We can use plants. We can use minerals. We can use metals. We can use gases. We can use drugs that have already been made, manufactured. We can use foods. So it's a matter of making up a remedy on this succussion process from whatever we want to make. Many, many doctors took up the idea after Hahnemann had written about it and did a lot of what we call provings on themselves and on people around them, volunteers. We don't prove things on animals. We only prove them on ourselves or humans. And the proving means taking the substance and writing down, taking good notes on everything that happens to you after you've taken the substance. <laughs> like sounds like an adventure <laughs> for the brave. It also includes observations from other people around you and it also includes observations of poisonings by the substance from records that were already in existence, what substances could do as poisoning. Quite a lot of the drugs that were in use in the day were pretty toxic, like mercury and ammonium salts and arsenic and all sorts of chemical things as are still used in pharmacy, only they're more complicated now. A lot of these had really known documented toxic symptoms. So we already had a starting point from that once we understood the principle behind it all. But the people who did the provings on themselves took such great documentation and their wives or husbands did as well, took notes. (laughs) And these were all put together eventually in books that could go out to other practitioners. And some time later, some excellent homeopathic doctors collected observations that had been written up by many other doctors on any particular homeopathic medicines and added them to the full list. So We have quite extensive knowledge now of what things can cause. I'd love to ask you a question of how you were introduced to homeopathic medicine because from what I understand, you graduated in 1982. So how old were you when you first discovered homeopathy and what were your first thoughts and why did this enter your life at that time? It's a fairly long story, actually. (laughs) (laughs) Of all ears. I was 25 when I first discovered homeopathy. but. Prior to that, when I was only 12, 13 and 14, I had flu needles annually. My father had a factory and he decided that his workers might have less time off work through the winter if they had the flu needles. Mm -hmm. So the family had to line up as well. So we did and that only lasted for three years and then he, I don't know if he died or he sold the factory, whatever came first. But I found after that that And even after the second one, the first one I didn't notice much change, but after the second one, I found it very much harder to remember things from schooling. And I'd swat up crazily for the exams and sit there not remembering the thing I'd read the night before. Hmm. And it was very, very hard. And I eventually 
failed in German, so they put me into history. And, of course, you can't do history if you can't remember because it's all based on dates. I could do the maths and the science because I could I could do the calculating. I just couldn't remember the formula, which was a bit awkward. Hmm. So I ended up not being able to do the pharmacy that I was expecting to go into after I left school because I didn't get a, enough marks to get a scholarship. And my father, who had three sons, decided that he'd better save his money in case he had to pay for the last son to go to university. So he said, I'm sorry, but you're going to have to go and get a job. So I did that and I worked for various firms and government and that was fine. But I noticed all through the years from that time onwards, my memory didn't really much improve, short-term memory. And I also started to become allergic to cats and we'd had cats all our lives and I'd never been allergic to cats before, but I started to get allergies to cats and various other things. And I'd put myself onto over-the-counter hay fever tablets and things like that, but wasn't very curative. And eventually, in, when I was 21 or 22, a friend of mine who worked for a, a hospital, she was a nurse, was friendly with a doctor there, and he decided that smallpox was going to come to Australia and we'd all better have smallpox vaccinations. So I uh, lined up for that as well. Within about four or five weeks, I started to develop very, very severe sinusitis and mucus problems. So I went to the doctor, not the same doctor, but I went to the local doctor and he gave me antibiotics and that sort of fixed the problem for a week or two and then it all came back and then I had more antibiotics, a different one, and that fixed it again for a week or two and then it came back again. And this went on for six months. He'd run out of antibiotics to offer me. We'd been through just about everything, penicillin and all the other varieties of it and the prior ones, the sulfonamides and things. And he said, I think I'd better send you to the ear, nose and throat specialist. So I went to see the ear, nose and throat specialist and he said, he was a doddery old chap, he said, you'll be right, dear, just have your tonsils out and it'll all be right. So <laughs> I went and had my tonsils out and that was fine for a week or two. And then it all came back again. And the doctor was quite stunned and didn't know where to go next and gave me another antibiotic or two. And after another three months after the tonsillectomy, mm -hmm. he said, I think I'd better send you to the allergy specialist. <laughs> right. So I went to the allergy specialist and they gave me the RAS test, which is the scratches up your arm. We must have had about 40-odd scratches. I've had them. And I reacted to every single one of them. Hmm. They fainted on their floor and they gave me a, a potion that had to be injected once a week by the local doctor. So I went to the local doctor every Saturday morning for 13 weeks. That was the 13-week program and had all these injections. And by the time I'd got to the 13th one, I was so bad that I couldn't breathe if I lay down I had to try and sleep in a chair you know lounge chair and after three nights of that I thought oh god this is the pits I really can't live like this and suddenly the light came on in the brain and I thought these guys haven't got a clue and if they don't know what's wrong with me I'll have to find out for myself hmm. so I went to a bookshop that I'd been passing in the city the ADR bookshop which I'd noticed had books on self-healing and dietary improvement and all sorts of good things. And I took home a couple of books on 
changing your diet and healing through through diet. And I remember one paragraph out of one of them said, give up on the five white death products. <laughs> white flour, white sugar, white rice, milk, pasteurised milk and refined salt. So I gave them all away and in two or three weeks the whole problem had all vanished, totally <laughs> gone, totally gone. And I thought, heck, this is interesting. So I kept going to the bookshop and kept on buying books on diet and healing and various other ways. And But it was another year or so before I discovered books on homeopathy. So as soon as I read the first one of those, which was a lovely book by, it was called The Magic of the Minimum Dose by a lovely English doctor called Dorothy Shepherd. She uh, wrote conversationally and she wrote for the general public and she certainly won me over and I thought, well, this is for me. This is much better than pharmacy. <laughs> mm-hmm. So the pharmaceutical world had done me a favour by preventing me from going into pharmacy. <laughs> and what did you think when you first read that book on homeopathy? Were you sceptical or were you open-minded? It was a revelation because I'd been through all the, you know, the worst of I thought could happen to me and I never wanted to take another medication in my life. But when I read about homeopathy and how it was so minute in dose that it had no real drug effect on people and certainly no permanent toxicity, I was sold on that. Very safe medicine. See, the fact that we're using such infinitesimally small doses increases, actually the smaller you get, the more it increases the electromagnetic energy which adds to our own vitality and stimulates our bodies to self-heal. Not only that, it makes it very cheap, and because it's virtually got nothing in it, the drug companies can't patent it, so they've been very much against us ever since the start because <laughs> they can't make any money out of something that boils down to what looks like water or alcohol and water. But the effect, you know, you have to experience it to believe it. So how long have you been working with homeopathy and this healing modality? How many years or decades? Well, in 1982, I was 39. I was 40 at the end of that year. So I graduated, actually graduated the year before that, but we didn't have certificates printed ready. The association didn't have them ready. So we didn't get them until 82. (laughs) So I've been in it now for, if you include the 10 years before I started studying, 45 years. And you've written a book and looking through the book, you have a very, what I would call a different approach from what I've heard homeopathy can be used for. And I'd love for you to be able to explain exactly how, I mean, I'll read the back of it. So you've researched the homeopathic remedies applicable to muscular and skeletal patterns and the emotional origins of these patterns. Now, that makes my ears prick up because over the last 25 years, I've been seeing a therapist that practice what is called neuroemotional technique or therapy. And that therapy is to do with chiropractic, but it's also to do with our emotional belief patterns that we have 
And as one of their tools, my practitioner has been using homeopathic medicine as an adjunct to that practice of chiropractic as well as emotional therapy, and which I guess balances the body, the structural, the muscular system, as well as using homeopathy as one of the tools. In fact, yesterday, my daughter and I visited him. She had a session for herself and she was given some homeopathic remedy for her to take to help balance out the emotional pattern or belief system that she was getting cleared of. So how does homeopathy work with our emotions, but also with our muscular and skeletal patterns that we have? Because for some people, that may be a stretch, but I'm probably one of the most open-minded people and parents out there. And I've seen the benefit on myself and also my children and the rest of my family. So explain how this works. Before I do that, I'll just tell you a little bit about how I got into that sort of work. Mm -hmm. Back in 1968, 10 years before I started studying homeopathy, I started at the Sydney College of Osteopathy. Hmm. And I was only able to do two or three years there and I didn't complete the course because I married an osteopath and had a baby and he decided that it was more important for him to go to the college and teach than it was for me to go there and finish learning. So he wouldn't stay home with the baby, so <laughs> I had to give that away. <laughs> that was all to the good because I'd learnt enough and I'd met some lovely people in the class and, of course, I didn't see them again, hardly saw any of them again, until 25 years later my next husband and I were travelling north and we found one of my classmates from that class in practice on the main highway, on the Princess Highway sorry, Pacific Highway, and oh, I said to my husband, I know that guy, I was at college with him you know, 25 years ago. Well, he said, oh, we'd better stop and say day," <laughs> which we did one day and uh, we were moving up there to a place about an hour away from where this chap was living and working. He said, oh, I'm glad you're here. I need a homeopath. Can you come and work with me? <laughs> so <laughs> I said, yeah, I'd love to. It started off only one day a month and he started to get patients for me and got people interested and it became once a fortnight and then it became once a week. And then the funny thing was after a year or two of this, my husband said to me, you know, you should really be with Brian. You've got similar interests. You should be with Brian. And he kept saying this and I kept saying, but what are you talking about? I'm happy with you. What do you mean? Then <laughs> to my astonishment one day he had a massive heart attack and and got out of the scene I then had to earn my own living totally and so I went to work with Brian Moore and that's how we kind of merged together and made all these discoveries one of the first things that happened was that I kept getting a mental message look at the sphenoid look at the sphenoid Brian was running a massage school. My other husband and I had already done the massage course with him. So I'd relearned all my anatomy and physiology. And I said to him, what's so important about the sphenoid bone? He said, being a teacher, he said, go and look it up. <laughs> <laughs> so I did and I found that it was the house of the pituitary gland. Mm -hmm. And I also found that the nerve and blood supply to the pituitary went up through a little hole in the bottom of the, the cavity that the pituitary was sitting in inside this bone and 
that if anything happened to pull the sphenoid bone sideways, that was pretty obvious that there would be limited nerve and blood supply to it because of pressure imposed on these vessels. So that was pretty clearly why I had to know about the sphenoid bone. But then I had to work out what that had to do with homeopathy and it turned out that I had discovered the remedy for my lowered immune system and my chronic fatigue issues that had never been fixed up since the antibiotics and I had moved up in potency to a fairly high potency with this remedy, Staphysagria, and got some brilliant results that dealt with things that had been going on for, you know, 30, 40 years and, well, not quite that long, 20 years. So it was quite remarkable to think that taking a strong dose of one remedy could bring up something from way back in the past and clear it out of the system. And what I learned was that we are not just a physical body. We have several other bodies, the etheric body, which is very close to the physical, and you can see it. If you put your hand up against a black surface or a black background, you can see a little shimmering around your fingers. That's your etheric energy. Then there's what they call the astral body, which is a little bit wider out, might extend a, a foot or two. You can see I'm old, a foot <laughs> or two away from the body. <laughs> Beyond that is the extended aura, which can go for, oh, metres away from you, the whole area of your auric energy field, which is is the sort of thing that people can sense when they can sense that somebody's behind them and watching them from some distance. It's the aura that's touching them that gives them that sense of a presence. So that's how big it can be. It's quite quite extensive. But what we had to learn was that any shock to the body or to the mind can have a blocking effect on the energy field. And different types of shocks would block in different levels and different parts of the body would be affected. Mm -hmm. So emotional shocks like fright and grief and anger, you know, inner rage type stuff, all the major emotional traumas that we can suffer, sometimes they dissipate, all comes good and nothing is left over from them. But sometimes the trauma is such that it damages or creates an energy blockage to the flow of of energies and because the energy then is not getting through to everywhere it's supposed to be getting through to, the physical body begins to eventually suffer and there's a correlation between the particular emotion and what part of the system is going to be suffering in the future if that energy blocks not resolved. Mm -hmm. So we had to learn what kinds of physical problems went with the blockage associated with severe fright trauma, living with fear is another way of getting a fear trauma, having it, you know, repeated every day, living in a fearful situation is very damaging in some parts of the system. There are various types of griefs. We learned that there are 
quite a number of different griefs that all have different remedies, that lots of different frights and fears that have different remedies. Guilt is a major one and there's lots of ways of feeling guilt and lots of remedies for guilt and remorse and associated with guilt is the feeling of it's up to me to fix this, so it's a responsibility issue as well. Eventually I found that in addition to the mental stuff there was the physical traumas that had their own psychology attached to them too and we eventually realised that it was the psychology attached to the trauma that was lodging the emotions into the non-physical part of your system to stop the energy flow. In other words, take the injury of getting belted up on the football field, Mm -hmm. getting a lot of kicks and bruises, maybe getting kicked in the head and knocked out and things like that. I've seen footballers stagger off the field and protesting, I'm okay, I'll be right, but they're still being told to get off. (laughs) Hmm. And they resist it. But then they fall over on the ground and they're unconscious because the people around them know that they're likely to fall down, but they refuse to believe it. I'm okay, I'll be right. And that is the mindset of the person who gets attracts to himself, a lot of bruises and docks and blows and falls. And we found that because you have a particular attitude to life, you tend to attract specific types of injury. And this was pretty clear to us through the work I was doing with Brian because I was often in his office when he was working on people. And as an osteopath, you do a lot of massage work before you actually get to doing any adjustments. And I used to write down which spinal vertebrae were out of alignment, which direction they were out. Uh, sometimes you could even see it just on the way they were lying on the bo- on the table. And I'd make these little lists and then I'd go away and work out what I would have given him or her as a homeopathic remedy. And sometimes I did to them. Sometimes I didn't really believe enough in it to accept a remedy. But it turned out to be the attitude to life creates the kind of emotion that we feel. And you can have an event, like you can have a car accident and five people in the car will all get different types of injuries according to the type of people that they are and their attitudes to life, which is really fascinating. The person who needs the homeopathic remedy, silica, which is for grit and strength, usually gets the glass in his face from the windscreen. The person who thinks that he has to be forever working in order to justify his existence is the one who gets the broken bones because that broken bone remedy is the one for guilt if not working. And so you can see there are lots of different types of injuries, but the people who are, whose mindset has a particular direction will attract the injury suited to that mindset. Is it that, hmm, if we're talking about cancer or heart disease or autoimmune disease, do you feel that there are certain behavioural patterns that contribute to these illnesses? Definitely, definitely. And you have to remember that there are really five stages of disease. You're looking at acute disease for the initial trauma, 
if that's not healed properly, it develops into a subacute one, and then it becomes maybe a subchronic one, a chronic one. And if the chronic one is not resolved, it becomes a destructive one. And cancer is in the level of the destructive. So you don't suddenly get cancer if you're perfectly healthy, even if you thought you were. Mm -hmm. I find that with a cancer patient, I look back through their life and observe the types of problems that they've had over the years and the types of traumas. And mostly I ask them, when that happened, what was your emotional response? Did it frighten you? Were you guilty about it? Or, you know, what was your major emotion attached to it? And that's where I get the clue to which remedy is going to go on. Because you can usually see a pattern through their lives where one remedy is repeated and repeated and repeated in its need, but it was never given. Mm-hmm. So I'm going to ask a question here that I know you'll have a response for, but if we're looking at, say, childhood illness and children with cancer, for instance, I just spent a week in Costa Rica and was working with medicine people over there and shamans, and they were talking about how we can inherit through our DNA emotional patterns and beliefs from our ancestors, whether it be our parents or grandparents that are unresolved for us to find resolution for. Now, is that too much of a stretch or is that based on what you've discovered over the years? I find that that is true. And with the very high potencies that I'm using to resolve these long-term issues, we can get back into pre-birth and DNA changes and deal with those. Homeopathy is the only system that we know of in the West to do that kind of thing, to resolve inherited genetic stuff. And homeopaths have been doing that since the beginning. You don't need to be using these very high potencies that I use. But it's because of the non-physical bodies that we have, which never die. That's the part of us that never dies. Life after life after life, we bring with us the traumas that we might have suffered but never were resolved properly. And we have a chance this time around to resolve them yet again. And if that chance is taken up correctly, it frees us up for much better life in the future. Hmm. So we're talking about structural and muscular, I guess what you would say, held trauma or held emotional belief patterns that can be cleared or released or have greater awareness of through the use of homeopathic remedies that you're talking about. And obviously in conjunction with physical manipulation as well, or what's the protocol? So, so somebody has come in to see you. Is there a protocol that you put into place? How do you diagnose and then how do you prescribe? Well, I listen to the history. I get as much history as I can. And then I get as much strange characteristics about the person as I can, as all homeopaths do. We ask what their food preferences are, what their climatic preferences are, what things disagree with them and so on. And we get a full profile that way. But from the use of the megapotencies point of view and resolving very severe chronic issues, sometimes I can even see on their faces what remedy they're going to need because their emotional storage is written in the muscles of the face and the lines of the face. How about that? 
Someone reached out to me on Facebook, I think it was, or Instagram and said, you should get Jill Turland onto your podcast. <laughs> I said, okay. So I looked you up and here we are a week later. And that was the thing that they said. They said, Jill can read your face and uh, pre- prescribe. I was like, oh, I haven't heard this one before. I'm interested. <laughs> So how do you do that? And give us an example of a protocol. One of the easiest and the most obvious ones is the four or five furrowed lines across the forehead. And that goes along very frequently with raised eyebrows and the whole expression is of this isn't how things are supposed to be. I know how things are supposed to be. and you're not doing it right or, you know, I've been wrongly done by or whatever. It's a judgmental aspect that some people have judgmentalism to a severe degree and others to a mild degree, but it's always the question of being able to judge what's right for everybody else or for yourself. We have a what you call a social concept of rightness, what is right and what isn't right. Mm-hmm. And this is ingrained in us since childhood, what's going to be right for our society in our behaviour and what's acceptable and what isn't. And if you've had that deep-seated training, and it goes back many generations, if you've had that training and you've got these furrowed lines on your forehead, then I can tell immediately which remedy you need because it's the one for that particular mindset of judgment. I know what's right. I haven't done the right thing. I should have done the right thing. I know how things should be and this is not how it should be and it doesn't matter whether it's me or you, something's not right. And when you have that, sometimes because of the Victorian children should be seen and not heard kind of attitude that we were up with, we get to not being able to stand up for ourselves or answer back or say what we really believe because we don't want to disturb the peace and we don't want people getting angry with us. So we don't say what we'd like to say because we don't want anybody creating a scene. We try to keep everything nice and calm and polite and in so doing we tense up the muscles in the jaw and not say what we'd really like to say. Not only in the jaw but the jaw muscles go right up to the parietal and temporal muscles and that affects the sphenoid bone and pulls it sideways. And that then affects the pituitary bone and interferes with the nerve and blood supply into the pituitary. And so we get slow down endocrine system, which in the long run affects our immune system and we end up getting cancer. But this could be many decades down the track. You might not get the cancer till you're 70 or 80 after being brought up this way. But everything I can see that's happened through your life tells me that you've needed this remedy for a long time. So just by looking at someone's face, I can say, oh, yes, I need to give you that. Even though we have a large number of remedies for cancer, this is your cancer remedy. Hmm. Side effects with homeopathy. Are there any? If you use very low doses, sometimes you can get side effects if you keep on taking something longer than it's needed. All that can happen with any remedy. If you take something longer than it's needed, you will build up the opposite effect. Instead of curing, you will create. Or because you have cured and you don't need it any longer, you will then create symptoms back of what you had before or 
still relating to the same remedy. Now, I had a patient once who came to me in February, this about 30, 40 years ago, came to me in February and she said, I've got this and this and that and that. And I said, oh, that sounds like Nux Vomica. I'll give you some Nux Vomica. She went away and took it and I didn't see her again for three months. She came in May and she said, oh, I've got this terrible situation, this symptom and that symptom and so on and so forth. And I said to her, that's still the same remedy that I gave you in the first place. Didn't it work for you? Oh, she said, oh, yes, it did. But I kept taking it because I didn't want to get that back again. People have this belief that if you keep taking something, you prevent it from the problem from coming back again, but that's not so in homeopathy. You fix something, it's fixed. You don't keep it up. So she had brought back onto herself the symptom picture of that remedy. It wasn't exactly what she'd had before, but it had still fitted the same remedy simply because she kept on taking it. Hmm. But with the very high potencies, some people are very sensitive and they get reactions that they don't feel comfortable with. But I have found that they are invariably what we call a return of old symptoms, which may seem like an adverse reaction. But when I say to them, have you ever felt like this before? They almost invariably say, oh, yes, I can relate to this. It was just like when such and such happened 15 years ago or whatever. I remember one woman who went to bed with the flu after I'd given her one remedy in very, very high dose. And I visited her a couple of times over the next week or two, even though she lived quite a distance away from me. And I couldn't do anything to make the flu any better. Nothing I gave her in the flu remedies made any difference to her. Mm-hmm. So I decided this must be a reaction to the remedy. And I said to her, if this is a reaction to the remedy, it has to be as a return of old symptoms. Have you ever had this before? Oh, yes, she said. When I had my last child 32 years ago, they wouldn't let me out of hospital for three weeks because they couldn't get my fever down. And I'd given her a remedy which was for a lot of the adverse effects of being stung by needles. I said to her, were they giving you needles? Oh, yes. Every three or four hours they'd come along with another needle. They were prolonging the problem by shocking her nervous system with another jab. doesn't matter what's in it. With this particular remedy, it's a remedy for being stabbed. And the fever situation was being perpetuated. Hmm. (laughs) So as soon as she got past the three weeks, and I think I might have given her a low potency of the same remedy to try and speed it through, and as soon as she got through that, she was so much better than she'd been for decades. So it's part of the healing process to get a reaction, but it's not necessarily an aggravation. So... I mean, you've mentioned it a couple of times throughout the podcast about having a needle for yourself and having an adverse reaction to it and that person then being stabbed by a needle. How does homeopathy differ from a vaccine or one of these shots that you're talking about? Well, yeah, because the whole principle of immunisation is a homeopathic one and yet because you can't patent a homeopathic remedy that's got nothing in it... The drug companies are stymied there, but they're using the concept of what it can cause, it can cure Mm -hmm. in a micro dose. The immunisation process involves giving you a a little dose of a disease in order to prevent you getting a big dose of it. Mm -hmm. 
and that is supposedly going to stimulate your immune system to fight against those rogue cells that shouldn't be in there, which it normally does, and build up antibodies. And that's perfectly excellent homeopathic principle. So what I discovered about that other particular remedy with the needle shock was that it didn't matter what was in the needle. You could stab somebody with a jab that only had water in it or nothing, and they would still get the benefit if they were a particular type of person who needed that remedy. In other words, people who'd been had plenty of needles in the past and had their nervous system shocked by being stabbed, which is different from being poisoned by what's in the injection. Mm, can you take me down both of those paths? Because you're explaining two different ideas here. So do you mind just briefly yeah. explaining those two things, please? Well, it took me a while to realise that there was such a thing as needle shock. The only thing that pointed me in that direction was the fact that the people who needed this particular wonderful remedy, Hypericum, were people who had had injuries of a kind that needed that remedy and they never received it. And it's not only a remedy for needle shock, it's a remedy for spinal jarring shock and injuries relating to motorbike accidents or speed of any sort or falling off a horse sometimes will bring on a need for it. If you land on the base of your spine and the jarring goes up the spine, that's a case for hypericum. If you land on the top of your head or you get hit on the top of your head and the pressure goes down into the spine, that's another instance where this anti hypericum is needed. And I found that I had, a, while we were doing this early work, nearly everybody that I saw needed the first remedy, the staphysagria for the endocrine system, for about two years. And then I realised that after two years that some people weren't getting the benefit. And I looked at all of these particular people and they were all people who'd had these serious injuries, they'd fallen off cliffs or, you know, had motorbike accidents or, you know, had car accidents, whatever, where their spinal jarring had occurred. And I thought, well, that's, you know, the only remedy we have that works brilliantly on those things is hypericum. Maybe they need hypericum. So I gave them all hypericum and bingo, they all got better. And I didn't find anybody coming in needing the first remedy very much at all over the next two years. They all needed the spinal jarring remedy. <laughs> and then, yes, we lived in a relatively small coastal area. We exhausted the supply of people <laughs> who needed that remedy. And in the meantime, of course, there were other remedies needed. And we were learning about some of the others that are in that book. But primarily, I learned such a lot about that spinal jarring remedy that was never known before and how to recognize it on the face of the person, which was. A vertical line, dead centre between the eyes, going up to the forehead. And if you look at a picture of Rupert Murdoch, he's got a huge one that goes up about four or five centimetres up his forehead, right dead centre. And what we learned about people who needed that remedy was not only were they affected by, it's a remedy for anti-tetanus, for jabs and stabs from a point of view of insect stings and sharp nails and things like that. What we learned was that it was just amazing the psychology of these people. We had to correlate the mindset of these people alongside the physical that we could see. We could see the physical. It was there in their symptom picture. It was there in their history. But we didn't know 
what the mind psychology of it was going to be like. And it turned out to be the remedy for people who want everything to be faster and faster, who want to get into the future as fast as they can. They can't take any interest in the past, get rid of the past, throw out everything that you've had for 10 years, get new stuff. And it turns out to be the remedy most needed for the adverse effects of immunisations that are so virtually become compulsory nowadays. It's not the only remedy that's needed, but so much of today's society is of this speed consciousness racing into the future. And it's just total amazement to me because nothing was written in our books about anything like that. Hmm. <laughs> yeah. Well, I could I could keep going, but I know we've already had a, a good hour of having a chat. So <laughs> I, I'd love to ask you, so those five white poisons, the sugar, the flour, pasteurised dairy, have you touched any of them for the last 40 or 50 years? It's pretty impossible to not get some <laughs> if you want to live an ordinary life. I am pretty careful. And I do suffer adverse effects if I eat more than a little of white flour or white sugar stuff. So I'm going to ask you, a, I guess, an existential question. After the time that you've been living this life of yours and treating patients over the last four or five decades, what are the realisations or what is the largest realisation you've come to about why we are here having this journey? And my take is for it's a chance for us to grow and to remember at the same time who we are. And I'd love to hear what your take is on this. I look at everything that's going on in the world and I think that the whole planet and everything that's on it and everybody who's on it is on a development line. And homeopathy is just one of the ways in which improvement is happening. It was brought into life you know, 200 years ago, but it's been developing since then. And now we're at a critical point where people are getting so fed up with being poisoned by drugs that it's pathetic and they're just wanting healing rather than palliative types of things or poisonous medications. See, with homeopathy, healing is always the expectation, but the medical profession don't seem to believe that anything can be healed. They just give you things to tide you over and hopefully it'll subdue it or suppress it and your immune system will take over and bring you back to normal. But, you know, that's really got no basis to it. We have remedies that prevent a tremendous amount of surgery and we put the surgeons out of business if homeopathy using being used all the time. <laughs> Not out of business, but, you know, there'd be a lot less dangerous surgery going on. Because if people were using homeopathic medicine as standard throughout their lives, they would never get that sick. They wouldn't have to deteriorate to that level of needing surgery in most instances. There are times when you have to have repair work done and injury repairs and things like that, but it's terrible. <laughs> it's just terrible what's going on and people are waking up. Hmm. Yes, they are. So if anybody would like to learn more about homeopathy, where do you recommend them to find great resources apart from your book, which is awesome, but how do they find a 
trained and reputable practitioner here in Australia and elsewhere? Is there some foundation or some recommendation that you can share? There are a few sites you can go to. One of them is the Australian Register of Homeopaths has a list of us that you can find somebody in your area. There's the other site called Natural Therapy Pages. A lot of us are in that. And there's the Traditional Medicine Society, Australian Traditional Medicine Society. They have a list of registered members, some of whom are not homeopaths, but you know you are able to find what you're looking for. It's not impossible. Don't go to Wikipedia if you want to know what homeopathy is because anybody can put anything in Wikipedia and you get a lot of negative stuff as well as potential positive. I think from general information, you're better to go to books that people have written and read them. And I should think that there are a number available on Amazon, quite a lot. I mean, there's hundreds of books, hundreds and hundreds of books have been written about homeopathy. And then finding a practitioner, you go through that and you go in there and you state your story and then you will have somebody look you over, ask you the right questions. And then through the work that you've done and others have done, maybe they could take you on a journey of discovery. You'd never look back. (laughs) (laughs) Well, Jill, I just want to say I love you and thank you so much for opening up to us today and sharing your wealth of information. And I'm sure it's going to be a rabbit hole that many will decide to investigate further. And hopefully they'll come across your book, which uh, we will once again talk about. It's called Getting Back on Track. And I look forward to connecting with you again in the future. So thank you so much. Thank you very much, Pete. The book is available through me from my own website, which is you just find that by Googling my name. Awesome. And we'll have a link in our podcast notes in which people can find you. And are you practicing still? I am. I, I tried to retire when I was 68, but I was only retired three or four months. I just had time to open all the boxes that we'd brought with us to our new home and get rid of a lot of stuff that we didn't need and so on and so on. And I was working because you don't buy a house that has three offices in the front of it if you're really intending to employ. <laughs> <laughs> uh, I love it. I've interviewed so many doctors and healthcare professionals in their 70s and 80s that are still doing what they love and they are helping people, so I love it. Well, I thought, this is ridiculous. I I like doing this kind of investigative work. I'm a compulsive detective, and why should I, you know, lots of people need this healing. And from (laughs) my observation, how is your memory these days from what it was as a teenager? Vastly better. (laughs) (laughs) So the proof is in the pudding. Vastly better, yes. Not only that, I've had one or two types of near cancer conditions over the years that I've cured and I'm probably healthier now than than I've ever been. I mean, after you hit 75, you've got to go and see a doctor to get a certificate to get your driver's licence continued to get approved. And my doctor <laughs> can't believe I'm as healthy as I am. And when I first went to see him, I said to him, I haven't seen a doctor for 41 years. Uh, he sort of <laughs> couldn't believe his ears. <laughs> you sound like me. I think I'm up to 20 years or 25 years too, but um, different therapists <laughs> and practitioners. 
it's called management and maintenance. Well, that's right. I do too. And of course, working with an osteopath, we've learned tremendous lot of wonderful stuff that's not homeopathy as well. And I've studied just about everything. I've got aromatherapy certificate. I've got everything you can think of almost. <laughs> and it all adds to, to your knowledge of who people are and how to help them. Well, I've heard the old saying that you only start getting old when you stop learning or when you think you know it all. So that, to be... That's probably right. Yes. <laughs> <laughs> awesome. Well, well, we'll do another yeah. podcast in 10 years' time and see where you're at. How's that, Jill? Wonderful. Thank you, Peter. <laughs> <laughs> the information views and opinions expressed in this podcast should not be treated as a substitute for nutritional, medical or other advice by a qualified professional. Guests in this podcast express their own opinions, experiences and conclusions. Nothing in this podcast should be used to diagnose, treat, cure or prevent any medical condition. Neither Pete Evans nor any sponsor endorse any views opinions or conclusions expressed or shared in this podcast.